30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. Once upon a time, I was flying on a plane and I got a cookie. The cookie was one of those healthy, eco-friendly cookies. You know, the kind that tells you how healthy and eco-friendly it is all over the packaging. I sat for a minute considering the cookie. And the question I pondered was, what is the difference between this cookie and a basic chocolate chip cookie I could have made myself? On the one hand, this cookie was made with spelt flour and carob chips or whatever. So it's clearly healthier than the sugar, flour, butter, chocolate chip cookie I would have made at home. The basic cookie I might have made would have been closer to a Chips Ahoy or another junk food cookie, right? But the more I thought about it, the more I came to believe that despite the fancy ingredients and eco-consciousness promotion of the packaging, this cookie was the one that was more like a Chips Ahoy. Both are manufactured, processed, packaged, and shipped, which is quite a different journey than any cookie I make with my own two hands even if I'm still using processed flour and sugary milk chocolate chips. My consideration of the cookie is similar to Marshall McLuhan's famous statement, the medium is the message. To quickly summarize, McLuhan posited that the medium by which a message was communicated was more important than the substance or content of the message. For example, a book about astrophysics is more like a romance novel than an in-person lecture about astrophysics because the experience of reading is more primary than the content being read. Ever since I first started thinking about becoming a wizard, I've had a bone to pick with the health and wellness world, but I could never really put my finger on the precise issue. If I looked at the content, it mirrored my own philosophy in many ways. It seemed to respond to the need we all feel for deeper connection, richer communities, and more open modes of thinking and experiencing the world. I'm all for those things. But when it comes together in an Instagram post for a wellness influencer, something about it irks me. Deeply. So consider the cookie. Healthier ingredients and eco-friendly intentions are great. But when they're applied to a mass-produced product, it feels off. Maybe, like Mr. McLuhan suggested, the content isn't the issue but the means of production and mode of distribution. If we apply this to the rampant growth of wellness, spirituality, yoga, psychedelics, pop occultism, and all the various products promoting a nebulous sense of healing, I get the sinking suspicion that the proffered cure might in fact be the source of disease. Advertising preys on desire and need. The basic premise of any ad is that your life is incomplete because you don't have their product. If you had their product, your life would be better. If you signed up for this coaching seminar, or did this ayahuasca retreat, or learned this prosperity magic candle carving trick, then your life would feel more full and complete. 
Unfortunately, after you complete the coaching seminar, ayahuasca retreat, or candle carving workshop, you return to a world where you're still under constant attack from advertising, preying on your needs and desires. So you keep looking. With traditional products, this is bad enough. But when applied to healing, it's far more insidious. We've become a world of sick and enfeebled seekers, sipping one poison after another in pursuit of an ever more elusive cure. We are the sailor lost at sea, drinking salt water in a mad attempt to quench our thirst. Worse still, we are stumbling into other cultures and traditions, desperately trying to find something pure while spreading poison with our very presence. How will we ever escape this toxic loop? Maybe it's time to consider a different cookie. Maybe it's time to look beyond content and instead investigate the mediums through which this healing will be supposedly received. Maybe it's time we talk to today's guest, Adam Aronovich. Adam is a doctoral candidate focusing on medical anthropology and cultural psychiatry. He spent five years living and working in the Peruvian Amazon, facilitating workshops and retreats while conducting extensive fieldwork and qualitative research, which led him to question some of the underlying assumptions of the contemporary Western approach to receiving healing from indigenous traditions of plant medicine. Since that revelation, Adam has taken to speaking out about these issues on his delightful, insightful, and often hilarious Instagram account, Healing from Healing. So I can't think of any better person to talk us through how to heal from healing. Well, hello, Adam. Hello. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What is our magic word today? Our magic word today is laughter. Laughter. Oh, that's such a good one. Okay. On the count of three, one, two, three. Laughter. laughter. A little, a little disynchronous, but oh, I mean, no, that was that was pretty synchronous by our standards. I mean, you right. know, we're we're operating across time and space. This is this is great. Totally. So I'm I'm very excited that you said laughter. Why why did you, that word come to mind? I think I've been I've been in a space where humor and lightness and laughter and joy have become a primary value for all sorts of different reasons, and. I just have like a very strong awareness of how important uh, laughter is in navigating current, um, <laughs> the current historical times we live in. These unprecedented times, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think laughter is is truly um, the best and strangest option available in how we react in a lot of things. It's um, well, we could probably talk more about it in a little bit, but yeah. Uh, for some context, I want to talk. Uh, start by talking about your journey. Um, I'm a huge fan of the work you've been doing uh, with Healing from Healing. And I would love for you to just walk us through your own journey that led to creating that and why you felt the need to speak out about these topics. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, to, to be honest, I haven't really thought about like a narrative that tracks and traces all of the journey. So it's a great opportunity for me to get more clarity also on my own motivations, which are not always very clear to me, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've been part of, I've been part of this world of wellness, um, plant medicine, psychedelics, uh, healing in all sorts of different capacities in all sorts of different roles for a very long time. What brought you into that world? What was your um, think, start into it? 
Well, I mean, I think like the easy answer is probably psychedelics were a big catalyst. Uh, my first experiences when I was in my early 20s, which provided me with a whole new world of reference uh, to explore. And then as I went deeper into the rabbit hole, it just branched out into pretty much anything in my life, including the professional aspect. Um, I studied psychology and was working a lot with people in psychiatric institutions or very disenchanted with the way that biological psychiatry addresses um, psychic suffering, particularly like severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like a long background story, but at some point uh, I realized that the human mind is incredibly complex and yeah, and Western psychiatry and psychology is just kind of like scraping the surface of the complexity of it and providing um, services that are less than optimal for the majority of people who really need some sort of relief and understanding of what they're going through. So, yeah, I started on a journey of, I mean, I started kind of going, I quit my job. I went to many places around the world. I spent some time in India and I spent time in Peru and Mexico. And one of the main questions that I always had is like, I'm spending time here with different cultures and different traditions. And how do different people around the world experience illness and experience health? And what does it mean to be mad? And what does it mean to be healthy? And also different questions that from the lens of, Western medicine are pretty straightforward, but they're not necessarily mm-hmm. universally valid. Uh, and part of that also was kind of like discovering like different shamanic traditions, particularly in Peru and in Mexico, uh, encountering like psychedelic plants and fungi and so on and so forth. And, you know, immediately realizing the vastness of applications that these things could have, not only for you know, curiosity and for creativity, but also obviously from a therapeutic perspective, which is a field that I was more close to. So from then onwards, uh, I mean, after that, I kind of went back to school and I started like really looking into psychedelic research and so on and so forth um, to actually to actualize the insights that I had and I put them into like good use. And I ended up afterwards kind of like doing my doctoral research in an ayahuasca retreat center in the Peruvian Amazon simultaneously leading the retreats and hosting the retreats and leading people through these experiences or at least supporting and holding space for people in these experiences, but also uh, conducting uh, qualitative and quantitative research in collaboration with different groups uh, to find out, you know, from more kind of like the, the epistemics of science to find out actually what was it from the ayahuasca experience or the retreat environment that people were benefiting from. So that's kind of like in a nutshell, the last 15 years, of that trajectory. And you're you're right at that intersection between the way that the sort of Western mindset of how we want to approach this is meeting with um, more indigenous or other viewpoints of what these things are and, and how we want to frame them and work through them. Yeah, exactly. So it's really kind of like, like creating or synthesizing, you know, the, the insights uh, and methodologies of both kind of, I mean, there's more than two, but you know, like what areas that we can derive from Western epistemologies and scientific methods and so on and so forth, but also like there's traditional wisdom, there's different ways of being and knowing in the world uh, that are not necessarily part of kind of canonical Western thought that have immense value and a lot of wisdom, particularly for the predicaments that we face um, collectively in these times. So now yeah. with, with um, you know, I've, I've been following along with the resurgence of psychedelics since basically I started taking psychedelics myself um, in my early uh, teen years. And 
it feels like there's been this kind of move in from the edges towards the center. Like when I first started hearing about ayahuasca and DMT and these these things, it was very much on the fringe. It was only these weird counterculture things that were talking about them and the potential they had. And then over time, it's become more and more mainstream to now suddenly everyone's talking about the potential of psychedelic therapy and it's not a weird thing for your like sorority to go on a trip down to the Amazon and take psychedelics. Yeah. And at the same time, though, I feel like my own reaction has been becoming more wary of the promise. Maybe it's not the promise inherent in these uh, in these things, but it's the way that it's being expressed and maybe the way that it's being heightened and exaggerated or some of the other baggage that comes with it. And I've often questioned, what is this me just being a surly rebel who likes things when they're on the fringe and gets annoyed when they're in the center of the mainstream. But I'm curious because you have such a critical lens on this. What was the moment where you started to kind of think about these communities differently and more critically and start to want to speak out about it and share um, this new perspective, which I see emerging a little bit more of people actually saying, here's some of the issues with the, the dialogue that's happening. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think that it's been kind of like a slow burning process that has been building up uh, throughout many years. Uh, first of all, yeah, I mean, the, the expansion and popularization and kind of like mainstreaming of psychedelics uh, to the point where now, you know, you find that on Netflix and the group lab with Winnie Paltrow and like psychedelic people and like uh, famous celebrities endorsing like different retreat centers and talking about their own experiences, uh, which, you know, I think like a lot of people perceive that as being a positive movement all in all. And I think as, as a rule, as kind of like a general zeitgeist to where the psychedelic movement is going, that's always been the goal more or less to validate these approaches, make them more accessible to people, decriminalize them and make them legal as valid approaches that can be accessed by anyone in need. And together with that, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of issues that are pretty unique to this process that have arised uh, in all sorts of different fields, um, including how do we actually engage with traditions that are outside of kind of the Western therapeutic and uh, scientific canon to some extent? How do you address like epistemologies of traditional people and their knowledge? What kind of reciprocity do we enforce in those relationships in order to make them not necessarily extractive and colonial and so on and so forth? There's also like a lot of problems in the way that we uh, engage with the knowledge or the insights that we derive from these experiences, they are like more related to what is the substrate of ideology and ideas that structure our experiences, which often tends to be kind of like still remnant from the 60s and the counterculture and the new age philosophical tradition and all sorts of different ideas that, you know, with the expansion of psychedelics and the the gold rush that is eliciting is just becoming very, very, very prevalent everywhere and oftentimes go unexamined. So it's kind of like this intersection between kind of like Western science and new age spiritual belief systems and religiosity and also kind of like animism and other indigenous ontologies. So it's like really a very, very rich, fertile soil of ideas and oftentimes paradoxical and opposed ways of understanding and seeing the world that, you know, by default can like dictate also how these experiences are, are experienced and how we interpret them mm -hmm. and how do we uh, make use of them. I, I, th I, think, I think that's such a great point of there's this tradition that people, especially in the West, 
come from and our visibility is pretty shallow. We have ideas that go back and then they connect into something that claims to be timeless, whether that's sort of the perennial philosophy of Huxley or just the sort of range of ideas that you find in the new age. And we think, oh, those are timeless, but those are actually just ideas that come from the 1800s and were translated into the 1960s. And it's not universal. It's not actually that every indigenous community has mythologies or thinks the way that we've decided to just blanket over and assume it's all the same underneath the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like one of, one of the main points that really got me thinking about these things and deciding one of the things that led me to decide that it was time to kind of like talk about it was that you know spending time in the jungle like being present for this exchange of ideas and seeing how many westerners were in the rainforest uh, engaged with indigenous ontologies and indigenous mythology and the interpretations that many amazonian people give for plant medicines I started realizing that there was a very asymmetrical relationship there, whereas the plant spirit community, the plant medicine, plant spirit community as a whole tends to have an extremely reductive caricature-like idea of what indigenous people think like or what mm. indigenous people believe when it comes to plant medicines. Yeah, like there's like extremely complex, beautiful, poetic, mythopoetic expressions of an endless array of different animistic uh, experiences of the world that are very prevalent amongst also different Amazonian people. But when we come to the jungle and we uh, are within the constraints of an industry that is constantly trying to commodify and package wisdom to sell in Western markets, inevitably what happens is that all of that complexity and nuance inherent to the indigenous worldview gets churned into a very cartoonish, caricature-like version of it that doesn't really represent nor does any justice to the beauty and complexity of the actual local ontology. So mm -hmm. we create, so we create kind of like this fiction, like this fiction world of anthropomorphic plant spirits that are benevolent and they're there to help Western white people to heal. And we can go into interactions with them if we just do so and so, which is very, very detached from the actual reality of what indigenous people perceive plants and plant allies to be like. So just like that discrepancy, that asymmetry, like the distance between the Western projection mostly used for marketing purposes and the actual lived experience of the people in the Amazon uh, showed me something that was really out of whack with the way that we address these things. Absolutely. I think, I think that's one of the key things is that we, the, the core assumption that people in the West um, especially tend to make is that everyone has the same individualistic viewpoint that we do and that the goal is to constantly strive to improve yourself and self-actualize and become a creative person who's then self-employed and then has a ton of Instagram followers because you're just doing your own creative business. Whereas that's beside the point to I think a lot of these communities that those ideas are are alien and, and not something that was wild why they were engaging with these plant spirits in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's completely exact and antithetical. Like, there's just like a clash of values that is very, very prominent uh, that oftentimes gets obscured or invisibilized because there's so much power to the Western narrative. The marketing takes so much precedence over anything true 
that oftentimes, you know, these things get obscured. And also there's a huge incentive for local people to participate in these dynamics, to participate in these markets, obviously, because there's a lot of money to be made. So it's a very, very tricky relationship. But, you know, what you just mentioned, when I first tried in the Amazon, one of the first, one of the story, one of the things that really interested me was, and still is, is just like how people in different cultures perceive madness. You know, what does madness mm-hmm. mean? What, is, what, is, what does it mean to be crazy for different people? And I started asking like just people in the Amazon, you know, like different healers and elders and like just, you know, lay people, like what does it mean for you when I say that this person is crazy? Now we tend to have a, a, this definition of madness that is very cognitive behavioral in many ways, right? It's like, oh, that person is acting in ways that are counter to what we define socially as the boundaries of normalcy and sanity. Mm-hmm. And anything that falls outside those bounds, then that person is not aligned with our socially constructed ideas. So that person is crazy. Um, when I asked that, when I asked that question in the Amazon, the the the, the, the responses or the answers were very very straightforward and very much rooted in the material realities of those people. Right? They would be like, "Well, for me, a mad person, for example, is a person that has too much yucca, which is kind of these white tuber roots that they cultivate in the rainforest." Uh, or too much maca or too much corn or whatever it is that that community is cultivating. Like a mad person would be somebody who has too much of something and doesn't share that with the community and instead chooses to hoard that and let it rot in their basement. Like that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're like, oh, like, that's really interesting. Like, why would that be a definition of madness? You know, and then you start realizing that in the Amazon, you can't really store things over time. There's very few ways of actually preserving food. If you don't eat it, then you only have a choice. Either you share that with other people or you let it go to waste, right? right. So the definition of madness would be like somebody who sees people who are hungry and instead of sharing resources with them, prefers to let his, his food go to waste. And that struck me like really, really, really deep because I thought like, oh, then like in our culture, that's actually the opposite. That's actually the, 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 the archetype that we glorify, right? Like the person that has too many houses and too many cars and a hoarding wealth and like just like this <laughs> image of success of a person who has too much in excess of everything is exactly the definition of pathological madness in this culture. So that was kind of like a wake-up moment for me, like, oh, wow, like, that's a really interesting insight. Yeah, but not only is their definition of madness different, but their definition is what we would call success, which I think yes. is one of those things where you realize that it's not just agree to disagree. Like, you call it tomato, I call it tomato, but it's essentially the same. It's like, no, like the thing that you value and uphold, I see as insane. And the thing that you see as normal is, yeah, it, it just like you're, you're completely at odds. Exactly. So, you know, this ties to what you were asking in the original question, um, which is, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when we think about plant medicines, which already the medicine term, you know, is very, it gives it a huge bias because it has become the norm, right? Like we, we call these plant medicines, everything has been extremely medicalized and extremely distorted to fit within a very particular healing culture where everything that we do has to be for the purpose of healing from something or personal growth or self-actualization. It's a very, very, very Western idea of like personal growth. Yeah. In many, many ways. That's the, uh, that's the new yucca that we want to hoard. It's like, we've, exactly. we've already gotten tired with having the most houses and now it's, well, how can I have the most psychedelic healing experiences that prove to myself and others that I have attained enlightenment or self-realization or one of these other brass rings on the spiritual totem pole? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's kind of like this is something that's always been established with the idea of spiritual materialism, right? Which is well, okay, mm-hmm. we we kind of like moved on, moved on because we're enlightened. We moved on from hoarding cars and houses, but now we want to hoard like plant medicine diets and you know peak experiences. And uh, Jamie Will calls it uh, bliss junkies. You know, like we're mm-hmm. bliss junkies. Yeah. It's like chasing that bliss <laughs> that gives us these experiences. Uh, Michel Foucault, a French philosopher and sociologist, came up with the concept of the entrepreneur of the self or entrepreneur of oneself. Basically, like decades ago, kind of like uh, shedding light on this process through which neoliberal subjects, people who live in the kind of societies that we live in where everything is for sale, feel the need to also apply that same logic to the most intimate thing that we are, which is our own sense of self, right? So what we're mm-hmm. seeing now is like that extreme commodification of our identity, of ourselves, um, as we become kind of like simultaneously both the consumer, but also the product to be consumed. So we have like, everybody has like their personal brand and we need to like market ourselves and advertise ourselves and create like this halo of success and appeal to whatever it is that we are, that we are offering the world. So we have like a whole industry of, you know, life coaches and all sorts of different new roles that derive from this kind of like self-growth, improvement, healing, market, industry. That is kind of pervading the whole thing, which is very, very different than how these things are used in their native context, which I think is kind of like the point. And I think what's fascinating with that um, that marketplace that I, I saw your post about that entrepreneur of the self, and it's just so apt. But the the range of products, it's like it's always still in the mall. I think we all kind of got tired of the person who was writing hashtag blessed and everything looks so picture perfect. And a lot of people started to recoil from that. But now there's a whole other marketplace or not other marketplace, but a whole other product line of people that are posting about how they're not perfect and they're being vulnerable by admitting that or by people telling you that you don't have to do all of these things, that you can just rest and, and practice self-care and that's a thing, or the people that are making fun of it in you know, whatever form, even you and I commenting on the commentary of the commentary, like it's all still ultimately going to Instagram or Twitter or one of these storefronts where we we sell and package these ideas. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's, I think, you know, the the, um, the motif of performativity. Mm-hmm. Like everything feels so performative, so virtue signaling, you know, so inauthentic. Like it's just kind of like the environments that uh, we navigate through this kind of hyper-real media of Instagram and so on and so forth, where, you know, it doesn't really matter if you've actually done your work or if you actually have anything of worth to offer, the only important thing is how that presents. You know, if you're really curating your grid nicely enough, that it's appealing to people. People have like this aspirational drive to, oh, like I want to be like that person because they have many followers and they have like story views and they seem to be thriving. And that's completely disconnected from that actually essence that person is. So it's like a very performative like scene all around. Yeah. What um, I, I I am so interested with how this um, I I don't know if you would call it disillusion, but as you started to see these other things, you were participating in this. You're doing research. You yourself had found value in uh, psychedelic medicine, and then then COVID hit. And then COVID hit. Okay, yeah. cool. So yeah, so tell me, tell me what, where were you when COVID hit? I was in the rainforest. I was in in the place that I used to work with. I was running a workshop. 
um, in the in the early days of COVID, and that was really the unraveling of everything for me. I mean, that and and the period that followed when I started like seeing and hearing and witnessing uh, the descent into madness and epistemic chaos. Mm. Like so many people that I respected and people that were like colleagues and teachers and people that I knew and like just seeing like the amount of people who fell so hard immediately for conspiratorial epistemics and people who chose to prioritize their kind of pseudo-libertarian worldviews and got completely opposed to any sort of intervention that mildly inconvenience their personal freedoms and just like starting to see how these things actually were not circumstantial but everything had already been there all the time and mm -hmm. COVID was just an excuse or a trigger to bring out those qualities and people who were inherently baked into those scenes and that was the thing that really fucked with me it's like how have i not been able to identify that all of these qualities none of these drives have already been baked into these epistemologies all along yeah, like the psychedelic spirituality scene the plant medicine scene the the yoga sphere the wellness industry i mean all of that has always been ingrained very heavily with all of these different ideologies yeah that stem from kind of like a conspiratorial worldview and new agey law of attraction causing miracles kind of like magical mm -hmm. thinking and medical libertarian views of like nothing matters as long as my personal liberty is not infringed like i'm gonna die on the hill of not giving a damn about other people's well-being as long as my personal liberties are upheld so all of those things are already kind of like baked in into these sins. And that was like a very, very disheartening, rude awakening of like, holy fuck, I have been contributing to this all along. Do you have an exact moment when you really, like, is there a straw that broke the camel's back and you looked around and said no? Do you remember when uh, Plandemic was released? Yeah, the uh, the documentary about, about COVID conspiracy stuff. I think that was it. Yeah. I mean, that documentary was so poorly made. So epistemically, like not good. Like I wouldn't, like, mm -hmm. I literally couldn't believe that people were falling for it. And it wasn't like just like two or three people. It was like literally half of my timeline was spelling this shit. And I was like, this is not okay. Like there's something like inherently wrong with the way that we're making sense of the world within our communities. Like something has gone really radically wrong in the wellness, yoga, plant medicine communities that this kind of poorly made and extremely poorly thought out documentaries having such an impact that is actually impacting real human lives. Like that documentary is responsible for hundreds and thousands of human deaths. And that's insane. And you're right. It's such like the combination of those, those things that were kind of laying in wait, those traits, those ideas, those ideologies, and then the combination of social media in a previous time, if you weren't talking to your friends because there's a pandemic and you can't see anybody, you don't know who's going off the deep end or is getting into woodworking. Like you don't know what's going on with them. But suddenly on social media, you can see which of your friends are sharing the links to this thing and sort of unmasking themselves in a in a very rapid way. And then, of course, also the spread. And then I think what you were saying a moment ago was so interesting of they were like sleeper cells like all of these ideas were already there but it's almost like if you had a group of friends and then suddenly got trapped in the woods and then you could see oh yeah 
Carol always was a bit anxious, and now I see her spiraling off into that, whereas this guy was also a little bit more self-reliant, and I could see the way that he, like, stepped up or, you know, people's traits suddenly magnify, and that happened just across the board with the, the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. It really has, I think, exposed the fault lines in so many of these communities that the idea of what's left and what's right is completely mixed up now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was that, that was it. And I think like more than more than like the actual sense making part of it, like how are these people like not able to discern between what's information and what is misinformation and what's like deliberately manipulative disinformation? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of like one layer of it. But I think like the thing that really, really, really got to me was just like how deeply entrenched that hyper individualistic and kind of like pseudo libertarian kind of thinking was within kind of like the new right. age hippie community or like me first, fuck the rest, you know, and, and seeing that at play in like the most ridiculous of way, like how many otherly sensible, loving people, whenever people starting like wearing masks, we're like, ah, oh, fuck that. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be muzzled. Like I'm not going to be wearing masks and like, I don't give a fuck about like your well-being or your, because I don't want my personal responsibility, my personal, <laughs> you know, liberties to be infringed on. I'm not going to be silenced. And like, man, like, if you can't even like take a step back from whatever folk ideology you're now submitting to and see yeah, that we live in society, that we are part of an interdependent network of constantly interbeing relationships where we're all enacting always like reciprocal, mutually responsible relationships. And you can't bring yourself to put yourself a mask on so you won't harm somebody else. Like that's the kind of thing that really, really fucked with me. Like just seeing how deeply entrenched that selfishness and hyper-individualistic libertarian mindset of I don't give a fuck about anything as long as my personal freedom is not infringed like that really was too much and I think it's just highlighting that disconnect that has been there for quite some time between I guess uh the talk that is talk and the walk that is walked my wizard origin story was working customer support at Squarespace and seeing the nasty emails that would come in from people who were life coaches or had yoga studios or had meditation retreats. And they would be the angriest, most volatile, most mean customers. And I was just thinking about how this is happening all over the place, that somebody is on their way to yoga and is cursing at the barista because they're going to be late. Like, that seems like you're missing the point of why you're going to yoga. Um, or people talk about that as the uh, the church parking lot phenomenon. Everyone goes to church on Sunday, sits through this whole thing about love thy neighbor. And then as they try and get out of the congested parking lot, there's honking, there's screaming, there's cursing. It's yeah. a pack of animals. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's a good meme that I saw recently. Somebody said, uh, I mean, I kind of like when I, was, when I was in my teenage years, I, were, I was more aligned with kind of like the punk the punk scene and like the punk ideology. Hell yeah. Yeah. And so somebody said, uh, punks are kind people pretending to be mean and hippies are mean people pretending to be kind. And I was like, <laughs> that's perfect. Like that's spot on. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so hard. I think that idea of performativity is, is, is really key here of, we are forced into a world that wants us to do certain things. And we feel like if we don't have this individualism, if we don't staunchly defend our own boundaries, that we're going to get walked on. And then we're trying to subscribe to these philosophies that don't work with that at all. You know, if you're deeply into Taoism, 
And at the same time, you're supposed to write a Taoist blog and get a post out every day and build your Taoist Instagram info. Like, like those things are kind of antithetical. And we don't see as many people truly walking the walk with these philosophies and I guess, you know, dropping off the grid to go live in a hermitage because if they do, we don't see it. We only see the evidence yeah. of the people that are kind of acting it out without really fulfilling it. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of like the crux of the problem when it comes to like what we're currently experiencing with the mainstreaming of psychedelics and so on, which is, you know, these things come at a cost, which is providing a benefit at the cost of the real benefit, which is very, very, very revolutionary and very, very disruptive. So, mm-hmm. you know, like neoliberal capitalism has always had that incredible capacity to co-opt and subvert anything that is potentially revolutionary and turn it to its advantage. Yeah, that's kind of the greatest strength of our economic and social system is precisely that ability to take something potentially disruptive and commodify it into and repackage it into something else that can be sold to a different demographic. And I think that's exactly what psychedelics are, what is happening with psychedelics, something that can really give people like that edge into seeing through you know, the structural problems that we collectively face as humanity, instead of that, it becomes something that's completely declawed and deep toothed and just marketed as another commodity to allow people to heal to the minimum extent necessary to go back to the same systems and structures that were making them ill in the, in the first place. And that I think is a great tragedy. It's always like, you know, now psychedelics are being promoted and kind of like marketed as another way of overcoming people's uh, trauma and, you know, depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. which is all great. I mean, we do need better tools to address anxiety and address depression. But more than anything, what we need is like a real understanding of why the folk are people so depressed and so anxious. I mean, this is a real, real epidemic of mental health that is permeating Western societies. Like anxiety and depression are at all times high. We don't really understand what's happening. We keep kind of like inventing new ways of addressing that without actually getting to the root of the core of the problem, which is not individual. It's not like how do we treat individuals, but how do we actually address structural violence and structural problems Yeah, to create societies that are better for everybody so we don't have to fucking deal with so many depressed, suicidal people all the time. And I think that's the thing that psychedelics could have been incredibly beneficial for is allowing people that perspective, like that ability to pierce through the narrative and the dogma to see the actual problems behind you know, the veil of society. But it's amazing to me that in the same breath, I'll hear somebody talking about why psychedelics are better. Like they'll be talking about how the pharmaceutical industry thought you could just give someone a pill and that was going to cure depression and they weren't treating the whole person and blah, 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 blah. And that's why my company sells psilocybin in a pill. And so you can just take one pill and cure your depression. And it's like, what happened to that idea of the whole person and the idea of being within a system and the things that I, I don't know about you, but I have seen while on psychedelics. I've realized that I am not just the identity that I call myself by my name, but I'm part of a larger thing and that any change or quote unquote healing needs to occur at that level not just medicating individuals with mail order ketamine and AI chatbots. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think like one of the, when I was doing my research and figuring out what was it about the ayahuasca experience that people found very beneficial, I came across a recurring experience that I, uh, I, I, I gave it a name. I so, said like, this is um, epistemic reenchantment and on, like ontological reenchantment, which basically mm-hmm. means like uh, an experience of reenchantment 
in regards to what exists in the world and how do we come to know what exists in the world. So it's a re-enchantment in relation to our sense-making capacities and our ability to perceive what the world is made of, right? Uh, and this experience is an experience that is oftentimes very meaningful for people. When people are undergoing an ayahuasca experience, for example, oftentimes they will have a sort of experience that primes them to see the world through a very different lens. Right. Oftentimes when Westerners come to the rainforest or, you know, in a general sense, our default our default uh, view of the world is that the world is a collection of objects. There's a collection mm -hmm. of objects to be exploited for the benefit of human gain in every way possible. It's a race to the bottom to deplete the world of things to create shit that we don't need. Mm -hmm. Now, Amazonian people have a very different of the world because they experience the world through the lens of animistic experiences, right? Like for them, the world is not a collection of objects, but a community of subjects. Everything that exists in the environment is not a thing, but a whom? Mm -hmm. A person, yeah? like, a, like an equal. Trees, plants, rocks, rivers, even clouds and everything in their environment is an equal, a spiritual equal to whom they relate in a reciprocal, mutual responsible relationship as if it was just another human person. So there, there's human persons and there's non-human persons. There's human people and then there's bird people and tree people and snail people and so on and so forth. But the quality of being people entails all of the things that we think are exclusive to human beings, right? Like being a person entails intentionality, agency, beingness, uh, the capacity, sentience, right? Like the capacity to feel emotions and hold grudges and get mad, but also be happy. So everything in the Amazon is on the same level. Trees hold grudges and jaguars are happy and yeah. uh, everything is an agent, like a living sentient agent. So when a person in the throes of an ayahuasca experience for whatever reason, something happens in the vision, they're like, oh, holy fuck. Like I never thought about it this way, but actually... Yeah, like the world is alive. You know, everything is breathing. Everything is, in a sense, there's intelligence and sentience mm -hmm. and agency in everything that exists. And that kind of like awakening is like an experience that oftentimes leads people very much so to reconsider their place in the world and start challenging the notions that are very, very ingrained, kind of like neoliberal consumerist society that everything is just to be exploited for again. Like, hey, maybe we can relate to the world in a way that is not me thing, but me you. This is a seminal work by Martin Buber, right? like a Jewish mystic thinker. Uh, he has this book, uh, I and Thou, which mm -hmm. is exactly, exactly that approach of like, what's the difference between a relation, me, it, and me, you, right? right. There's a whole world of difference between me and an object or me and a subject. So that epistemic shift or that re-enchantment is precisely people realizing, hey, I can have a relationship that is not just me, that, but me, you. And that's a very, very, very significant shift in awareness. It almost feels like the difference between deciding to treat objects like people rather than treating people like objects, which is the, the trend that we tend towards more and more as we continue to just package and process everything. Exactly. I'm curious, this is, this is a hard question, so I'll, I'll try and figure out how to, how to word it. But well, I'm, I have never traveled to the Amazon. I've never done ayahuasca. And I've done plenty of other psychedelics, especially in a more like teen punk yeah. suburban context of, you know, wandering out to a soccer field at night to, to take mushrooms with friends. And I always wondered, do you think it is the experience of going somewhere new to traveling to a foreign environment, of being in a foreign culture, 
or of the ayahuasca substance itself versus like we were talking about earlier, why can't Western people do this on their own territory? Why can't the therapy say, you know what? You didn't grow up in the Amazon around these belief systems, around these jaguars. You should just take a bunch of acid and go to the mall. Like that's your background. That's where you will find your epiphany insight. Like go understand your world and then you can reintegrate directly because you're having epiphanies about the world that you consume. You're on acid at the 7-Eleven looking at the taquito spin and you're yeah. realizing what that means rather than having a panther spirit visit you. And it's like, you've never fucking seen a panther in your life. Yeah. What does that have to do with anything? So rambling question, but I'm, I'm curious what you think is um, going on there. No, I love that. I love that idea of a person dropping acid in 7-Eleven with taquitos. I mean, that's a very appealing, <laughs> that's a very appealing image. Yeah, I mean, this is such a good question. And there's, you know, so much material there to unfold. I think traveling definitely has an impact. You know, there's something that, I mean, this is kind of like a basic idea in the philosophy of, of tourism. There's a mm. lot of, there's a whole body of work that tries to unravel the phenomenon of tourism, which is a very Western kind of new concept. But, you know, there's something about mundanity and routine and complacency that happens when people stay in the same place for long periods of time. There's something about travel that immediately yanks people out of their comfort zone and allows them to be more present than they are in real time, which you know, makes sense. If you're in the Amazon all of a sudden and you don't speak Spanish and it's a foreign environment and there's like motor taxis all around you making a lot of noise and you're worried somebody's going to steal your wallet. You know, like inherently, you're going to be paying more attention to what's happening around you uh, than whether you're in a familiar environment where everything is kind of like taken for granted. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a point of travel that primes people to pay more attention and be more attent. Like an attention factor is important. But, you know, like to answer your question, the real reason, or at least, you know, I'm going to just give you an advance of the bottom line of my research, which is significant. The actual... In my opinion, according to my observations and hundreds of interviews that, I, that I've done with people after they've done their workshop and so on and so forth, there's one main factor that I've singled out as being particularly important, and that is neither the local place nor the ayahuasca itself. That is the social component, the group. The group mm. factor is primary. Primary, primary, primary. And this is something that I wasn't really expecting to find, but something that became very evident very soon. Wow, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, people don't realize how lonely and alienated the majority, of, the majority of us really are in Western societies. And this is something that is oftentimes underplayed. A couple of years ago, I remember something that struck me really hard. I was reading the papers and I came across... Um, an article that basically said something like Theresa May, which was back then the Prime Minister of Britain, Theresa May has appointed a member of her cabinet to be the Prime Minister for Loneliness of the UK. I was like, mm, what the fuck does a Prime mm -hmm. Minister of Loneliness even mean? Like, what are, what are her duties as Prime Minister of Loneliness? Um, and very soon afterwards, like many Western European countries follow through. And also, like, you know, there's like a Minister for Loneliness addressing what seemed to be a major public health concern in Western democracies, which yeah. was loneliness. Like, people are just lonely. And that's a major, major risk to health, both individual and public. When people come to a workshop, there's many things that happen within the context of a workshop that have little to do with the actual ayahuasca. You know, there's many group dynamics. Uh, there's a sort of bonding that happens between people. Any facilitator will tell you one of the most magical things that happen in a workshop is the following. You get a group of strangers. It can be 20, 21, 25 strangers. 
that don't know each other and within two or three days they're bonded and they're friends forever. Yeah, that's kind of like a very common outcome of these environments. And I was like really curious, what, what is it about it? I mean, why does that happen in that particular environment, first of all? You know, and why do people find that so beneficial? Because a lot of people that I interview, when it came to like, hey, like if I ask you, like, what about the workshop did you find the most beneficial? Very, 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 a huge number of people would be like, you know, actually, I mean, yeah, the ceremonies were great. The insights that I got were great. The ability to introspect and work through like trauma was great but actually like just like the feeling of togetherness like the sense of community that i found like you know like the relationships that i formed during my time here that was for me like the most healing thing right and i was like okay well that's interesting so you know like going back to the retreat there's many things that happened during a retreat and i think some of the most significant interactions that happened during that retreat is what oftentimes defined as like sharing circles mm -hmm. after a ceremony i mean this happens like throughout the retreat a few times like in, in the beginning to when people introduce themselves and then after ceremonies and then in the end like a closing circle and these sharing circles are very interesting very very interesting because the way that many facilitators frame them is encouraging people to really be authentic and vulnerable and share Right, like what it is that they're really there for. You know, most often times, obviously, because everything is so medicalized, most people go there for healing reasons because that's kind of like the cultural side guys. Like we mm -hmm. want to heal, right? So a lot of people who get there are people who are not there for just curiosity or creativity, or you know, mostly because they have they've been suffering from depression or they have like physical ailments that they want to work on, or in also different ways they they're looking for healing. So people are encouraged to share that. And oftentimes what people find is like, oh, like, you know, like I'm here in a circle of strangers. I'm talking about my problems and I'm sharing with people about my depression and I'm sharing with people about my suicide attempt. I don't even know you guys, yeah. but somehow I feel comfortable doing that. Somehow I feel heard, I feel seen, I feel witnessed. And in exchange to that, I also hold space for your story and I see you and I witness you in your pain and in your suffering. Something magical happens when people realize that suffering doesn't have to remain private that we can share our sorrow with other people and go through this experience together. And that makes something magical happen, which is something that Victor Turner defined as a sense of communitas. Mm -hmm. like this idea of communitas, of shared togetherness, of a coming together of people in a way that is transcendental of the individual and really highlights like the reciprocal, mutually responsible nature of human beings. Like people regain the capacity to see themselves as social beings who are able to actually be seen and be witnessed and in exchange see and witness other people in a way that feels safe. Um, and that's magic. That's like magic. That's when magic happens in those retreats. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is that is absolutely fascinating and it just adds such a dimension to what we've already been talking about. Um, are you familiar with the Johari window? Do you know about this? The what? Johari? Yeah, it's called the Johari window. It's um, it's by Joseph Luft and Harrington Ingham. They just combined their first names to create Johari. But mm. um, it's an exercise where basically it's like you have a four by four grid and it's um, known to self, not known to self, known to others, not known yes. to others. And yes, so yes, yes. That makes me think like we've been talking about this one layer of everyone's kind of living their regular reality and then on social media or wherever we have these performative versions of that. But then there's this other level that's almost like the deeper one of the hidden internal reality. So I'm on the surface just going through my daily life, just doing all the normal things that someone does. I'm presenting this facade to others of like the highlights of it 
via Instagram photos and, and things like that. And then I'm hiding from everyone, possibly even myself, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, the things that I'm struggling with. And I think on a mass scale, that creates a world where everything gets more extreme because I look out and I see everyone else's facade. I feel like I can't talk to anyone about the hidden world that I'm struggling with. And the distance between me and anyone else is just growing, growing, growing. Yeah. When you actually get to experience those depths together and hear that somebody else that you, you know, were like, oh, who's the hot girl in the group? And then they talk about their lifelong struggle with an eating disorder. You're like, oh my God, that person's so much more complicated than I realized. And I'm not as alone in the things that I'm struggling with. It's very humanizing, I guess I would say. Yes. Humanizing is a perfect word. I, li- I love that word. Um, relentlessly humanizing each other, I think should be a motto. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Relentlessly humanizing each other. Yeah. All of that, yes. And there's also like, there's, there's, there's a problem about how to actually action uh, that drive. Because I think there's a very big difference between actually the, the closeness of intimacy of presence, which enables like actual intimacy in that sense and like really vulnerable shares to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. But when people translate that from the actual presence to the, to the virtual space, that's where shit gets lost and completely distorted. And that's where we enter the very dodgy terrain of, uh, performative vulnerability and vulnerability exactly. porn. And, you know, there's, there's like, just like, there's so much, like so many terrible accounts of like, you know, people who, you know, like, like Jen was, Jen, my wife, she was, she was like showing me the other day this account of a influencer mom who has just uh, had an abortion, which is an incredibly you know, traumatic experience. And she, for some reason, decided that it was a good idea to make a video of herself in the hospital bed, crying, like com- completely disheveled, uh, talking about how difficult it was being for her because she was going through this abortion and this miscarriage. And all the time, like she was grieving and she was distressed, but also she was like broadcasting this live to her thousands of followers. And yeah. I was like, this is yeah. so insane. Like the insanity of this thing happening is really, really disturbing. Like why would that woman feel compelled to share like that incredibly intimate, vulnerable moment of grief and distress that her and her husband and her unborn child were going through in real time, live on Instagram? Like what's the drive behind it, right? Um so, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of like performative vulnerability is something that is incredibly prevalent in virtual spaces. And I think it's a misguided attempt to recreate like that sense of communitas that can only happen in real time with real people in a real environment where we're actually in the presence of each other. And when that's translated into social media, uh, when the drive behind it is not necessarily the, the, the emergence of communitas and the emergence of like a real sense of shared togetherness, but actually it's just like a very misguided marketing strategy to virtual signal, um, you know, signal virtue, hey, like I'm a person who is vulnerable and a person who can share like, a, you know, my most painful moments with others, then that becomes like a very, very destructive, very, very um yeah cringe worthy dynamic yeah and that that creates the authenticity crisis that i feel like we all struggle with where yes you're looking around and you're going all right is that real or is that a performance or is that the hidden or is that a performance of the hidden like it gets you know it's easy to get lost and this thought just came to me which i don't i don't think i've ever really had before but going back to what we were talking about this idea of animism 
Um, I'm going to kind of, you know, use words a little bit loosely here. But if we if we think about things having a soul, right, and I'm not having a strict definition of soul, but just some sort of essence that we're yeah. just going to call a soul. It's almost like these other things have a soul that you can't photocopy. Like if you the painting has a soul, but you take a picture of the painting and you print it out, the soul is gone. It's been lost. And so the community sitting around in the sharing circle, somebody sharing the story of their abortion, that has a soul. But yes. the version of it that's broadcast on Instagram has lost its soul. And our culture wants to scale everything. Our culture is sort of indifferent to whether something possesses a real soul or not. And going back to you know punk culture, which I think you and I have both roots in, there's a difference between somebody making their punk leather jacket and putting the studs in themselves and painting the names of their favorite bands on it versus the version that you could get at H&M. That is just yes. kind of the watered down fast fashion yeah. version. And I don't know how, but I wish that we could reignite this idea of what has soul and prioritizing that of saying, oh, well, yes, those two look identical, but I'm going to choose this version because I know that it has soul. It's not the scaled up version. It's not the version which has been drained and stripped away of this essence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, like things that actually have soul versus things that are empty and void of intrinsic meaning, but are just like empty shells of something for the purpose of marketing or ritual signaling or so and so forth. Yeah, I mean, the crisis of authenticity is a real thing. And I, you know, I, I resonate with that. How do you think we heal from healing? Healing from healing was thought out first and foremost. And it's something that I think I always try to kind of make it clear because it can be confusing for people. Healing from healing is first and foremost a space for providing support, empathy, validation, and comic relief to people who have had enough of the bullshit of these spaces. That's a primary concern. Yeah, like this is not a place necessarily. I mean, I do engage in dialogue oftentimes, and I think it's very important to maintain a semblance of civil engagement, even with things that are like blatantly ridiculous. But first and foremost, like the main concept really is like there's many of us who are still recovering from cult like dynamics, implant medicine, new age, yoga mm -hmm. spaces that, you know, it's kind of like providing like a sort of like cathartic. Uh, moment that we can come together and talk about these things, um, you know, like addressing the issues. But at the same time, and something that also is important for me is that I am 100% uh, still part of that world in many ways. Yeah, I'm not just like an, I'm, I'm not a I'm not an external person just criticizing from the balcony, like oh, like that's bullshit and that's bullshit. No, and I am fully, I'm fully immersed in this culture still to this day. Like I participate in it, and I don't hate it. I'm not a hater. Yeah, like all this labor in a sense, the labor of love, because I do have a lot of faith in the value of good criticism to actually point the way towards how things can be done better so we can actually have better healing spaces. So those are kind of like the two primary uh, goals, right? Like first and foremost, provide community support, validation, comic relief for people who have been harmed or are still in recovery from whatever bullshit they went through and gaslighting they went through in spiritual wellness, whatever places. But the second one is like, actually, how, how do we actually make these things better? You know, like, how do we actually create places that, um, you know, are welcoming to other people that are more diverse, but also like, you know, we have a better, we have better epistemic hygiene and we have like better sense-making capacities and, can, and we can discern better about 
exactly what you said. You know, what does have a soul and is worth engaging with? And what is just an empty shell of whatever spiritual grifters are trying to, you know, take advantage of people. So that's kind of like the two things. And the second one is kind of like, you know, just like really proving trickier because sometimes, you know, I have to say, like sometimes I do feel the disheartening and the cynicism like taking over a little bit and like it gets a little bit harder to keep my heart open and saying like well yeah i mean everybody is struggling in different ways you know kind of like the classic plato's uh, everybody's fighting a hard battle so uh, be kind to everybody yeah i mean we can be kind to each other but still i think it is important that we do keep a very critical eye particularly in these times where these things are exploding and people are kind of like being duped in so many different ways and people are vulnerable to exploitation by you know narcissistic manipulators which unfortunately are so many prevalent in these communities um so yeah i mean the main intention is really like healing from healing is first and foremost how do we keep laughter alive in the midst of you know all these disasters whatever but also like how do we make better spaces that are actually better for everybody to heal in and also you know sort of kind of like like the the other component of it which is you know, how do we reform, how do we reform the scene, really, but how do we address what healing actually means, which I think that's kind of like the, the overarching philosophical question. Uh, therapy culture is very prevalent. I mean, if you go on Instagram and you check therapy accounts, like the amount of like bullshit <laughs> you find there is yeah. just insane, like pop psychology and like therapy culture and like just like the shallowness of things that pass off as like, you know, mental health support the whole idea of healing i think needs to be revised from the bottom up you know like there's cer- certain things about the way that we address healing today in our communities that are just not good you know like the the centrality of trauma where suddenly everybody has trauma like everything that happened to you mm-hmm. is a traumatic event that you're never going to recover from like everybody is on a journey of recovering from trauma i mean like this, this is insanity I mean, there's so many different things about like healing cultures in relation to trauma and in relation to politics and in relation to like hyper individualistic and like self-referential self-absorption loops of like i'm never gonna like get out of my own head um you know we, like we need to move towards a version of healing that is not as narcissistic and self-absorbed a version of healing that takes into account that individual health is contingent and intrinsically linked with community health and social health and and the health of the culture and the health of the environment. And the main message, I think, in Healing from Healing is always that reminder that nobody can be really healthy and happy unless everybody else is healthy and happy. They're interconnected, interdependent beings and the individual health. Again, individual health is always interdependent with community health, social health, cultural health, environmental health and then like a self-absorbed narcissistic approach that only looks at our own personal drama and our own personal biography and all our trauma and our narcissistic excess and all so on and so on uh, is counterproductive in the long run because it completely invisibilizes the fact that actually if we don't live in healthy communities and if we don't live in healthy societies and if our culture of consumerism is constantly telling us you're not enough, you're not successful enough, you're not beautiful enough, you need that product and that service order to be happy, and the environment that we live in is completely out of balance and everybody's suffering from climate anxiety. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, like maybe your anxiety is not only because of your trauma, or maybe your depression is not only because you have low serotonin levels, maybe you're just an aware human being living in pre-apocalyptic times 
and your response is a valid response to catastrophic climate change. You know, there are things that I think is very important to come to terms with in terms of like, hey, yeah, there are things that are important as a person to come to terms with in ourselves, but also like keeping an eye open outwards and seeing structures and seeing environments and seeing culture. I mean, that's just equally as important as the inwards journey. Absolutely. There are there are so many things that you said there that I would love to jump on and 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 dive deeper into. But I think the the truest path just brings us full circle back to the word that you said at the beginning of laughter. Yes. And laughter is, I don't want to quite call it an antiseptic, but it feels like a I don't know, like a vinegar or something, like it's like a balancing agent. And if you have communities that are taking themselves way too seriously, so we don't make jokes about anybody's healing or trauma or beliefs or whatever it might be, you lose that ability to self-regulate. If you had a community where someone comes in and they say, hey, I just got a cosmic download and actually, you know, the 5G antennas are controlled by the lizard people, blah, blah, blah. And someone can make a joke about that because it's ridiculous and then everyone can laugh. That can kind of help balance things out. You can imagine the more extreme where it's a very acerbic, cynical group of like depressed comics and they're just so mean and, you know, putting each other down. But that doesn't really generate that much laughter, actually. I think in those environments where it's so harsh and cynical, you also lose the laughter. And so if I'm imagining walking into the great high school cafeteria of the world, I want to sit at the table that has a lot of laughter going on, that that is having fun, that everybody is having fun because no one's being picked on. But that that ability to laugh and not take yourself or others seriously prevents, I think, some of these worst excesses. And at the same time, I think laughter is one of those things that has a soul. <laughs> and yes, it's very hard to... Uh, to photocopy and fake it. You you can have a much harder time telling who is the real therapist healer from their Instagram, but humor is one that's hard to fake. And when a brand is trying to be funny and not succeeding, it like comes off as pretty cringy and bad yes. right away. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fundamental. Laughter and humor are fundamental tools of toolkit. The, the, like the, the most wonderful healing epiphanies that I've had have almost always been accompanied by laughing out loud because I'm in one of those loops and I'm like, oh, what do I do about this, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly I have one of those realizations and I'm just like, oh my God, why am I worried about it? it? Like, It just cracks it open and frees it. So Exactly. All right. What is our spell going to be? What is something which, again, you know, there's so much advice in the world these days. There's a million blogs and articles and things that are like, here's the top 25 things you should do, blah, 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 blah. So we want to keep it really small. What's something that's just one little thing that someone listening to this could do to kind of bring some of our magic into their life? Just like, like as a follow-up to that last bit of communication. Oh, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what's coming up for me in terms of a spell? And this is, I think, like primarily, I mean, I'm saying this primarily for myself, but just following up on what you said, I think like one of the main maladies indeed is that we do have a tendency to take ourselves too seriously. You know, the Western psyche kind of gets, <laughs> tends to suffer from sporadic inflation periods where we forget that how insignificant we are in the cosmic thing, scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And I think like one of the main, one of the main remedies towards self-inflation and taking ourselves a little bit too seriously uh, is exactly like just like self-humor. And, like the ability to actually recognize like, oh, like I'm just a little bit out of my depth right now and I'm taking myself too seriously. 
and you know being able to ridicule that not like in a malicious way but like right, oh, like, that's, right. like that's ridiculous so i think the spell should point out in some ways towards that ability to make fun of ourselves like experience like how like develop our capacity for self-humor of being able to ridicule our own selves and laugh at ourselves and be okay with that. My grandma used to talk about needing to get her laugh for the day. I would call her up and then I would say something and she would laugh and she's like, oh, I'm so glad you called. I got my laugh for the day now. Like, I'm good. And yeah. I almost wonder if we can kind of direct that inward. So it's like, where's where's the laugh for the day where we catch ourselves doing something ridiculous, doing something exactly. soulless, getting all bent out of shape. You know, like the the one going back to earlier about that you know, the difference between walking the walk and talking the talk. When I yes. first started meditating, I told myself I was never allowed to grumpily storm out of the space where I was meditating and yell at somebody, will you be quiet? I'm trying to meditate. Like, yeah. like that's the emphasis <laughs> of it. And if I ever find myself tempted, like that's the moment to check in. So yeah. yeah, I wonder if we can all try and at least enjoy one good laugh this week of finding that moment when we we get away from ourselves and indulge in that. Perfect. That sounds excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more of Adam's work, visit healingfromhealing.com and check out at healingfromhealing on Instagram. And for more wizardry, I want to take a moment to just try and be the solution rather than more of the problem. I think you're fucking perfect. I think whatever you're doing is awesome and I don't want to heal you at all. I don't want to help you overcome your trauma. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to celebrate you for you. And I want your money. I'm going to be totally honest. I want a little bit of your money because I want this podcast to grow and to become something that more people can enjoy. Not because it's going to solve their problems, but because it's fun. It's fun to have a podcast by a wizard. It's fun to enjoy something for its own sake. And it's fun to connect with other magical people who are looking at the world in a different way and trying to find a new medium where we can grow something different, perhaps even slightly better. So with the full understanding that I will not heal you and I do not have the cure to what ails you and I just want you to give me some money because it's funny to be a professional wizard with a podcast, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where you can do exactly that. Give me $4.20, help support more wizardry in the world, and just know somewhere in your being that you are complete because you are part of the greater experience of wizardry in this world. All right. My fate's in your hands. My voice is in your ears. Until next time, I'm your wizard, Devin Person. I believe in you. You're perfect as you are.